Chapter 19 of The Year When Stardust Fell This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Joshua Saxon, Baltimore, Maryland. The Year When Stardust Fell by Raymond F. Jones Chapter 19 Conquest of the Comet For the first time since the coming of the comet, Ken sensed defeat in his father. Professor Maddox seemed to believe at last that they were powerless before the invader out of space. He seemed like a runner who has used his last reserve of strength to reach a goal on which his eye has been fixed, only to discover the true goal is yet an immeasurable distance ahead. Professor Maddox had believed with all his heart and mind that they had hurdled the last obstacle with the construction of the pilot projector. With it gone, and all their tools and instruments and notes, there was simply nothing. As Ken considered the problem, it seemed to him the situation was not as bad as first appeared. The most important thing had not been lost. This was the knowledge, locked in their own minds, of what means could prevail against the dust. Beyond this, the truly essential mechanical elements for starting over again were also available. Art Matthews had been very busy, and he had parts enough for six more motor generator sets. These were decontaminated and sealed in protective packing. It would be only a matter of hours to assemble one of them, and that would power any supersonic projector they might choose to build. And they could still choose to build one. In the radio supply stores of the town and in the junk boxes of the members of the science club, there were surely enough components to build several times over the necessary number of generator elements. In the barns and chicken sheds of the valley, there was plenty of aluminum sheeting to build reflectors. The more he considered it, the more possible it seemed to take up from where they had left off the night before the fire. There was one important question Ken asked himself, however. Why stop with a replica of the small pilot model they had built on the roof of Science Hall? As long as they were committed to building a projector to test for effectiveness, they might as well build a full-scale instrument, one that could take its place as an actual weapon against the dust. If there were errors of design, these could be changed during or after construction. He could see no reason at all for building a mere 30-foot instrument again. The greatest loss suffered in the fire was that of the chemistry laboratory and its supplies and reagents. Materials for running tests on the dust could not be replaced nor could much of their microchemical apparatus. The electron microscope, too, was gone. These losses would have to be made up, where necessary, by having such work done by Pasadena, Schenectady, or Detroit. If the projector were as successful as all preliminary work indicated, there would be little need for further testing, except as a matter of routine check on the concentration of dust in the atmosphere. Before approaching his father, Ken talked it over with his fellow members of the science club. He wanted to be sure there was no loophole he was overlooking. Labor to build the reflector is what we haven't got, said Joe Walton. It would take months, maybe a whole year for us to set up only the framework for a 250-foot bowl. Getting the lumber alone would be a community project, said Al. That's what it's going to be, Ken answered. Johnson is behind us. He'll give us anything we want if he knows where to get it. I don't think there's any question of his authorizing the construction by the men here. There was nothing else they could think of to stand in the way of the project. It had been two days since the fire, but Ken's father still seemed stunned by it. After dinner he sat in his old chair where he used to read, but he did not read now. He sat for hours, staring at the opposite corner of the room. 
Professor Larson seemed locked in a similar state of shock. In addition to his wife's death, this destruction of their entire scientific facilities seemed a final blow from which he could not recover. Ken recognized, too, that there was a burden these men had carried that no one else knew. That was the burden of top-level responsibility for a major portion of the world's effort against the invader. It was an Atlas-like burden that men could not carry without suffering its effects. Ken approached them that evening, after he and Maria had helped his mother with her chores and had gathered snow to melt overnight for the next day's water supply. Dad, Ken said, I've been wondering when we could get started on the project again. The fellows in the club are all ready to go. I guess most everyone else is too. His father looked as if Ken had just uttered something absolutely unintelligible. Start, he cried. Start what? How can we start anything? There's nothing left to work with absolutely nothing. Ken hesitated, an ache in his heart at the defeat he saw in his father's eyes. He held out his hands. We've got these, he said. He tapped the side of his head. And this. Professor Maddox's face seemed to relax a trifle. He looked at his son with a faint suggestion of a smile on his lips. Yes? What do you propose to do with them? Carefully, Ken outlined the results of his inventory. Art can build up to six engines if we need them. We've got plenty of electronic parts and tubes big enough to put 60 or 70 kilowatts of supersonic energy in a beam. We don't want to build a little reflector again. We want to put up a full-scale instrument. When that's done, build another one, and still another, until we've used every scrap of material in the valley. By that time, maybe we'll have some cars running and can go to Frederick and other towns for more parts. Ken's father leaned back in his chair, his eyes closed. If enthusiasm could do it, we could look forward to such a structure the day after tomorrow. Maybe enthusiasm can do it, said Professor Larson quietly. I believe the boy is right. We've let ourselves to spare too much because of the fire. We still have the necessary principles in our heads. If Ken is right, we've got the materials. The only problem is that you and I are a pair of old, exhausted men without the necessary enthusiasm and energy. Perhaps we can borrow enough of that from these boys. I'm in favor of undertaking it. By the light of oil lamps, they planned and talked until far past midnight. There were still no objections to be found outside the labor problem. When they were through, rough drawings and calculations for the first projector were finished. Such a projector could surely reach well into the stratosphere, said Professor Larson. With the tremendous velocities of the air masses at those heights, one projector should be able to process hundreds of atoms of atmosphere per day. I am wondering, said Professor Maddox, if we should not make the reflector parabolic instead of hyperbolic. We may disperse our energy too widely to be effective at high levels. I think not. The parabola would narrow the beam to little more than its initial diameter and would concentrate the energy more than is required. With the power Ken speaks of, I believe the hyperbolic form could carry an effective wave into the stratosphere. We'll make some calculations for comparison tomorrow. They authorized Ken to speak with the sheriff the following day. I've been wondering when I'd see some of you people, Johnson said bluntly. What are you doing about the mess on the hill? My father thought maybe you'd drop in, said Ken. The sheriff shook his head. Cheer move. I just wondered if you had any ideas or if this fire had knocked the props out from under you. It did, but now we're ready to go, and we need help. Briefly, Ken gave a description of the projector they planned to build. 
Labor is the problem for us. If we could have all the carpenters in town and all who could be spared from woodcutting and every other activity for two or three weeks, I think we could get it done. You know how many men are left, said Johnson. Between the war with the nomads and the epidemic of flu, one-third of those we had when this started are dead. A third of the ones left are sick, and quite a few of those are on their feet have to take care of the ones that aren't. I know, said Ken. You know how the people feel about you scientists? Yes. The sheriff stared at him a long time before continuing. It won't be easy, but we'll do it. When do you want to start? Tomorrow morning, in Jenkins Pasture, north of town. How many men? All the carpenters you can get and a hundred others to rustle materials and tear down old buildings. I met with the council this afternoon to go over work assignments. You'll have your men in the morning. The rest of the day, Ken and his fellow club members chose the exact spot to erect the projector and staked it out. They spotted the nearest buildings that could be dismantled for materials and made estimates of how much they needed. The following morning, they met again on the site and there were ten men from town, in addition to the college students and others who had taken part in the research on College Hill. "'Are you all Johnson's spared?' Ken asked the group. The nearest man shook his head. "'They were assigned. No one else would come. They think you are wasting your time. They think you can't do anything about the comet. A lot of them are like Megs and Granny Wicks. They think you shouldn't try to do anything about it.' Ken felt a blaze of anger. Sometimes I think they're right, he said bitterly. Maybe it would be better if we just let the whole thing go. Now don't get me wrong, the man said. We're on your side. We're here, aren't we? I'm just telling you what they say and think in town. I know, and I'm sorry. These other fellows will tell you what we need done. I'm going to ride in to see Johnson. The sheriff was not in his office. Ken was told he had gone over to the food warehouse where rations were being distributed. There was some rumor of a disturbance. Ken remounted his horse and rode to the warehouse. As he approached, he saw the lineup before the distribution counter was motionless. In front of the counter, Sheriff Johnson stood with a pair of revolvers in his hand, holding back the crowd. He glanced at Ken. Don't tell me. I know you haven't any workers out there today. They're here in line, trying to collect groceries without working. We're not gonna work so those scientists on the hill can have the fat of everything, a man near the head of the line shouted. Others echoed him with cries of hysteria. Ken felt his disgust and disappointment vanish before a wave of genuine fear. These people had ceased to be anything but frightened, hungry animals. Their capacity for rational action had all but disappeared under the strains they had suffered. They were ready to lash out at anything that appeared a suitable target for their own hysterical anger and panic. It was useless to expect them to help with the projector. The crew of scientists and students would have to do it alone, no matter how many weeks it took. Sheriff Johnson, however, had no such thought. He fired a bullet over the heads of the crowd and brought them to silence. Listen to me, he said. I know you're sick and hungry and scared. There's not a man or woman in this valley who isn't, and that includes me and the members of the council and those you tried to burn off College Hill. You don't know how good you've got it. You don't deserve it as good as you've got. You people should have been with those in Chicago or in San Francisco. You should have known what it was really like to be suddenly cut off from every ounce of food beyond that which was in your own cupboards. You should have known what it was like to fight day after day in the streets of a burning city 
without knowing why you were fighting or having any hope of victory. You've gone through your battle, and you've won, and you're still here, and there's food left. A lot of us are still going to die before this epidemic is over. We haven't the medical means to save us all, but some of us will come out of it, and everyone has just as good a chance as his neighbor. That's not important. It doesn't make much difference whether any one of us stays alive now, or dies in 50 years. What is important is trying to keep the world alive. And that's what these scientists are doing. While you accuse them of every crime in the book, they are the only chance the world has got for survival. They can't do anything about it, a woman shouted. They're just making it up to get more than the rest of us. The crowd started to take up its cry again. Shut up, the sheriff thundered at them. I repeat, you don't deserve to be as lucky as you are. But you aren't going to get out of taking your part and pulling things back together again. Help is needed out there north of town, and you're going to help. You help, or you don't eat. A roar of rage thundered from the group. One man stepped forward. You can't pull a thing like this, Johnson. We've got guns, too. We've used them before, and we can use them again. Then you had better go home and get them right now, said Johnson. My men and I will be waiting for you. I suppose there could be a lot more of you than there are of us, so you can probably shoot us down. Then you can eat all you want for a month and die. Go get your gun, Hank. Come after your rations. The man turned to the crowd. Okay, you heard what he said. Let's go and get him. He strode away, then turned back to beckon his followers. In the empty street before the converted theater, he stood alone. Come on, he cried. Who's coming with me? The crowd avoided his eyes. They shifted uneasily and looked at Johnson again. What do you mean, another man asked, about we work or we don't eat? Come on, you guys, Hank shouted. The assignments on the projector will be rotated, said Johnson. We'll spare as many men as we can from everything else. Those of you who have been given assignment slips will get three days rations. When you bring back the slips with a verification that you did your job on the projector, you'll get an assignment somewhere else until it's your turn again. The ones without verification on the slips don't get the next three days' rations. That's the way it's going to be. If there's no more argument, we'll get on with the distribution. Hank, get down at the end of the line. By mid-afternoon, the scientists had their full crew of sullen and unwilling helpers. The sheriff had sent along a half-dozen of his own men, fully armed, to see there was no disturbance, but the objectors seemed to have had their say. With a gradual increase of co-cooperativeness, they did the tasks they were assigned, bringing up materials, laying out the first members of the great skeletal structure that would rise in the pasture. Johnson came at the end of the day to see how it was going. He breathed a sigh of relief at the lack of disturbance. It looks like we've got it made, he said. I think so, Ken agreed. All we have to do now is see how many more of these we can get built in other parts of the world. They spoke that night to all the stations on the radio net, describing in detail what they had begun, what they were confident it would do. Professor Larson's words were relayed to his colleagues in Stockholm. They estimated they could begin work almost immediately on six projectors. Others, elsewhere in the country, were quite probable. In his conversation with Pasadena, Professor Maddox warned, We have not yet been able to make tests with the big projector. Our only work so far has been with the laboratory models, but they were highly successful. That's good enough for us, said Dr. Whitehead, director of the Pasadena work. Everything we've done here has failed so far, 
A direct chemical approach seems out of the question. We'll start with one, but I think a dozen projectors, at least, are possible for this area. Pasadena also reported a new radio contact with Calcutta and promised to pass the word on to them and to Tokyo. When they closed down the transmitter after midnight, Ken totaled the number of projectors promised with reasonable certainty of having the promises fulfilled. There were eighty. It may take a year, his father said, or it may take ten years, but now we know, without a doubt, that we can someday get our atmosphere back as it was before the comet. End of chapter 19. Recording by Joshua Saxon, Baltimore, Maryland.